Yeah, thank you, Alex. Thank you, Eli. Enjoyed that. That's a djembe, is it not? Love that. All right. Well, thank you for sharing and uh, being a blessing to me as I hear your testimonies and your time in the Word. If you turn to the book of Revelation, let's do that. Chapter 21 is where we find ourselves now as our study uh, continues. We're going through a tour through the book of Revelation. This is part 31, in case you're keeping track. And uh, you'll find in your notes, as I mentioned from time to time, front side, the more, uh, today's date is what we're going to go over tonight. The back side is the previous evening's time in the Word. So if you're keeping track of them and you missed a few, that kind of helps you fill in uh, those things that you may have missed. A recent survey asked the wealthiest 1% of Americans how much they would pay for a place in heaven. And that's what we're going to begin to talk about. The elite group of about 1 million households earns at least $250,000 per year, has a net worth of at least $2.5 million. These millionaires gave the following answers, a breakdown of what they would spend on certain unique opportunities. If they were allowed to buy great beauty, beauty the average price they would be willing to pay was 83000 For talent, if they could buy it, 285000 Great intellect, commandeered 407000 they said true love, if they could buy it, would be worth 487000 The highest bid on any subject went for a place in heaven to secure that spot for eternity. Uh, these wealthy Americans said that they would part with $640,000 to secure a spot in heaven. It's an interesting that even if heaven could be bought, those with the most money don't want to spend more than 25% of their net worth to get there. That's quite a stark contrast to the 100% investment that Christ tells us we have to make and the investments that he made. Last time we were together, we finished chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, and we concluded with the final judgment on all those who died in unbelief. And that is the end of the thousand-year kingdom. So what happens now? Well, God is going to recreate. We're going to see that now as we read in chapter 21, verse 1. I'd like you to turn there. Let's go ahead and read the passage we're going to study that lets us kind of get a picture of it as a whole instead of breaking it down at first. Verse 21, chapter 21, verse 1. <clears throat> then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there was no longer any sea. Verse 2. And I saw the holy city the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God being ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. He will dwell among them. They shall be his people and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death and there will no longer be any mourning or crying, or pain, the first things have passed away. Verse 5. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. Verse 6. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost,
And we see John writes, he says, Now I see, or I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And John is kind of relaying for us as we've gone through this chronologically the things that he sees and the order that he sees them. For occasionally in chapters we've gone back and filled in gaps or we've gone forward and filled in some of the details. But here he mentions to us that I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Now Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 7 tells us what happened to the old one. Let's look there if you would. Just hold uh, your finger here. Turn to Second Peter 3 if you would. Verse 7. go through verse 18. We'll get a snapshot of it. We talked about it a little bit last time, so we won't spend a lot of time on it. In the context of this, of course, Second Peter, Peter is speaking of um, the fact that people ignore God's salvation. They ignore the fact that he already destroyed the world one time with water. They've, they've forgotten that that's been the case. Uh, and then verse 7, it says, By his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Verse 8, But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. Verse 9, The Lord is not slow about his promise, that's to do this type of judgment and bring forth these things and complete his establishment of his kingdom. As some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Now, verse 10 says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass and away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat. So that last time, the base things, the order things, that's the word there, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Verse 11, Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? It's an implied answer, isn't it? We should be focusing on the kingdom to come because the things that are here won't last. Verse 12, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning. So he goes ahead and repeats that. So we understand for sure this is the case. And we talked about it last week. The heavens, perhaps speaking of the immediate heavens above us, our atmosphere, perhaps uh, the whole of the universe uh, that may be destroyed, but uh, the, the word can be used of the, the local heavens. Uh, will be destroyed by burning. The elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, verse 14, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. So that's the answer to uh, what he just got through saying, what kind of people should you be. And in regard to the patience of our Lord as salvation, his long-suffering, his not willing to take retribution when it's due, uh, is salvation. That's allowing people to come to faith. Uh, just as our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you as also in all his letters, speaking to them of things, of these things, in which some things are hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, and they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard, so that you're not carried away by the error of unprincipled men, and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. And beloved, the day of eternity is the day we're talking about right now. That's where we are in Revelation. And that's what's going to happen. That's the, the fate of the current heaven and earth. 
This is not just a New Testament concept. It's a, a concept we find all through the scriptures about the destruction of what exists now. Psalm 102, verse 25. Of old you founded the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Even they will perish, but you will endure. It's for sure. All of them will wear out like a garment, like clothing. You will change them, and they will be changed. Very direct statement for us. Isaiah chapter 65, 17. Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. Not only will the earth be destroyed, Scripture says it's not going to be remembered and it's not going to come to mind anymore in the new kingdom. Isaiah 66, 22. For just as the new heavens and the new earth which I make will endure before me, declares the Lord, so your offspring and your name will endure. Uh, I'm going to make things new, and also, as he speaks to Israel here, you also will endure. You'll no longer be destroyed, brought under uh, subjection by your enemies. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 10, And you, O Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They belong to you, Lord. That's the praise of, of the writer here. They belong to you. You made them. Verse 11, They will perish, but you remain. And they will become old like a garment and like a mantle. Verse 12, you will roll them up like a garment. They will be also, also be changed. But you are the same and your years will not come to an end. It's a marvelous thought. The world is the Lord's. He can wreck it if he wants to because he can make it new. And that's exactly what he's going to do. Revelation 21.1. Let's look back there if you would. Flip back. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. There was no longer any sea. So this added thing we see there, the earth was not going to have a salt sea. That's an interesting uh, thought to think about. We're not going to have a salt sea. But if you think about it, that it's likely that the first, when God first made the earth, it didn't have a salt sea either. Okay? And most scientists, uh, Christian scientists would agree that it's likely that the water was fresh when the world was first made. It's only by the erosion of salt from the soil that goes into the basin of the ocean and then fresh water evaporates up out that leaves the sea saltier and saltier. So the water in the new creation is going to be fresh. The water in the initial creation was fresh. It's likely it's going to be the same in this new earth he's going to make. And, of course, you know this, I think, but the increase in salinity is a consistent value. And so uh, we know that the earth's oceans were not salty, but have become so by erosion, by evaporation. And we know that they become more so as we move into the years. But because there's going to be no more sea, that hydrological cycle is going to be changed somehow. Right now, that controls our weather. It does those types of things. Uh, the earth will likely be watered in a different way, perhaps the way it was when the Lord first created it by a mist. Uh, we don't know for sure, but we know for sure that there won't be any sea. But also, just as a, a footnote, uh, understanding this, uh, uh, the fact that the earth used to have a sea that wasn't salty is also proof of a young earth. Uh, if the earth is less than 8,000 years old, and that percent of salinity that continues to increase year by year, what we see, uh, then the earth uh, is about as old as we think it is, about 8,000, because that, that follows, this, the salinity of the sea follows with a, an average age of a young earth. However, if the earth is billions of years old, as uh, evolution of scientists say, then the salinity percentage would be much, much greater. In fact, uh, most say that the, earth, the, the, the sea would be nearly solid, that there would be so much sediment and salt and so much erosion down into the ocean uh, that it would be much more su uh, sal uh, salty than it is. So, anyway, there's no longer any sea. And you can just kind of tuck that other, those other things away. Those are interesting things to me. And uh, the earth right now seems to be, it's about 75% water. Perhaps not so in the new creation. But uh, remember what we said this morning. When men fell, creation was cursed. When man is glorified, creation is glorified. Genesis 3, Romans chapter 8. 
indicate that connection. And this is where we are now. Uh, man is being glorified. Man is being restored. Uh, things are being made new. And that's what we have. Now look at verse 2, if you would, in Revelation chapter 21. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem. So what she looked like? Well, John describes what he sees. Coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. That's very common language for us, isn't it? We understand uh, who the bride is right now, don't we? The church itself is the bride of Christ. It's a beautiful new city of Jerusalem. And the other one has been destroyed because all the earth and everything in it was consumed and everything was made new. So this new Jerusalem uh, has been made ready and uh, it's like a bride adorned for her husband. It's already existed before this because it says it's been made ready. And we understand John 14 that Jesus went to prepare. And so in that type of language, you understand that it was prepared already beforehand and it's coming down now. And it's beautiful imagery of a bride, the church, and so it's inhabited. And we're going to see this as we move on into it, as it examines more of its details. It's inhabited by all the saints. And so it kind of shines just like the saints do. And in verse 9, it talks about more and more of this, so we'll keep on going now till we get there. Look at verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, and this loud voice is Jesus himself. It's the loud voice that we heard in Revelation chapter 1, verse 10. And so Jesus is speaking, a loud voice from that throne area speaks out and says this, verse 3, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be, it says, among them. That's a very important statement. God himself, in the definitive, not just God will be with them in general like he is now, like his Holy Spirit dwells among men like they do now. His localized glory interacting with men in an intimate way. That's how it's going to be. The eternal state is, and we understand as we explain heaven, we understand heaven is where God is, right? I mean, everything that comes to us as a result of a relationship with the Lord comes to us because of His presence. And heaven is where God is, and the Lord is bringing this new Jerusalem down to this new earth. And so heaven is going to be there, and the Lord is going to be there in His presence. It says, His tabernacle of God, the tabernacle of God is among men. So God will be there in his localized glory, interacting, uh, perhaps like he did in Eden before the fall, uh, interacting with men. That intimate fellowship is really key then to the understanding of the next verse. Look at verse 4, if you would. Verse 4. And he will wipe away every tear from their eye, and there will no longer be any death, and there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And the key to that verse is this last sentence. Now, God is dwelling with men. Uh, his intimate relationship with them, his localized glory there with them, uh, pro pro provides for this type of care. No tears, it says, uh, because that's from the former things. Okay? The former order of things were tears. This order is no tears. Uh, no death. That was the former order of things. Death. No more death. No mourning. That was the former order. No crying. That was former. No pain. That was former. There's nothing here that's going to disappoint, in other words. Nothing here that's going to cause regret. We're going to have perfect understanding. <coughs> There's nothing here that will be heartbreaking or wanting or incorrect. Nothing there that's unfair. That was the former order of things. Now, remember, as we were on earth, as we are on earth, as the believers have come before us, as we saw this morning, the Lord uses difficult times. Difficult circumstances. He uses suffering that's suffering along with Christ for Christ's sake. He uses suffering that is part of living on the earth now as part of the way he perfects us and makes us able to reflect, reflect his glory more perfectly and give him glory more perfectly in the eternal state. 
Now we are in the eternal state. So they, those things have passed away. And those things are no longer part of the reality for us. That'll be a, quite a blessing, won't it? Living on this earth uh, in, a heaven, in a glorified body, and earth has been remade, and no longer any of those things that cause disappointment, no longer those things that cause regret, and no longer will there be heartbreaking or wanting or unfair things, no injustice anymore. Those are part of the former, and this is part of the latter, this perfect state. We're with God now. And of course, did we expect any less? If God is there and his presence is there, that's how it's going to be forever. The old order is gone and the new order has come, and that's what we would expect if we're with the Lord. And in case you doubt that, because it's easy to think that things are going to continue to be you know, like they are. You're going to continue to have tears of regret when you get into this eternal state. You're going to think about lost opportunity and all those things, loved ones and failures, right? Remember the next verse. Look at the next verse, verse 5. He says, and he who sits on the throne said, so the Lord brings in now with him, the Lord's sitting on the throne, the Lord brings in and says, behold, I am making all things new. And he said, write this, for this is faithful and true. Okay? So the Lord says, as Christ has called out and said, look, there's not going to be any more tears, no death, no mourning, no crying, no pain. Those are the former order of all those things. And we think in our own mind, we'll, we'll, we'll constantly be thinking about our loved ones who are past. We'll be thinking about the missed opportunities we had. You know, those, there is time for that. And remember, there's a thousand-year reign. There's a tribulation time. There's all of those things where there'll be time for those regrets. The tears don't get wiped away until we get to the eternal state. Okay? I think that when people, I think that people perhaps think that uh, if, I, if I die tomorrow, I'll be in heaven. I'll no longer have any tears. The Lord's going to wipe away all my crying and, and all that kind of thing. I'll never have any regret or pain or remorse for the things that I missed. That's not going to happen until now. That's, this is when the Lord says he does that. So there'll be plenty of that going on, I think. Plenty of uh, uh, realizing we've missed opportunities and things. When we get to the new order of things, when we see the new Jerusalem coming down, when the Lord has recreated the earth, uh, we will live in that eternal state and the old order will all be done. The old order will be done. And the Lord says, you know what? These words are faithful and true. He's going to make everything new. And I'd like you to breathe that thought in for a minute. Because I don't think we can really, as we can't imagine what it means to be glorified in this real respect, I'm not sure we can imagine what it means to live without regret. Live without lost opportunity, that thought. Without messing up and wishing we hadn't. And all those things. But the Lord says, those are the former things. And that's not going to be a part of this new thing. Write this down, he tells John. They are for sure. This is for sure what's going to happen. And just remember, as we've worked our way through Revelation, we've seen that a few times, haven't we? Jesus uh, referred to the same thing. He says, To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, Amen. The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of creation of God, says this. That's quite a, uh, you know, it's quite quali- uh, great qualifications, wouldn't you say, to make a categorical statement? The one who sits on the throne says that. In verse 5, Jesus says it. And uh, to the church in Laodicea, Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. Those are the type of comments that refer to the Lord. Those are the type of comments that refer to Jesus himself. And uh, so when he says that's how it's going to be, and we can rest assured that that will be the eternal state, that heaven is going to be, have a richness to it in character, not just in what we see, but in how we feel and how we are able to act and conduct ourselves. A sweetness that's beyond, I think, our, our ability to grab a hold of all of those things. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. God's word always comes true. He's faithful and true. Everything he says will be done. He tells John, write this down. This is for sure going to be how it is. And he says it will happen, and that's exactly what will happen.
And if you just remember everything that he said has uh, that has happened is said has happened just like he said, and it's not contingent on our understanding necessarily of how we think things ought to be or how we think things may be. Oh well, he says it. We'll forget all about this. But in the eternal state, I know I'll never forget the missed opportunity or all the mess ups. Listen, it is what it is. Scripture says this is how it'll be, and we can embrace that and realize that's how the Lord wants it to be. All right. And just like we saw in chapter 1, verse 11, where Jesus says that very thing, uh, that that's the case, uh, these things are true. Now look at verse 6. He said to me, it's done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. There's nothing that can derail his plan. It's done, he says. Uh, for, all, uh, for all means and purposes, this is finished. And I read this inter- uh, interesting take on Alpha and Omega, and you've probably read all kinds of things about that. Your commentaries uh, say a lot about that, but... I think it's important to think about it. I'm the Alpha, I'm the Omega, I'm the first, the last. If you just think about the first and last letters of the alphabet, the English alphabet, you've got 26 letters, the Greek you have 24. The endless combination of everything between those letters that that can convey. The endless stream of knowledge, all the things that you can put together with all those letters and words. And when that analogy is really applied to the Lord, it takes on, I think, a significant meaning. The Lord is the supreme sovereign alphabet. There's nothing outside his knowledge. There are no unknown factors for the Lord. There are no events that are unplanned. The Lord didn't, doesn't ever say, wow, I, I didn't see that coming. And the Lord is always uh, sovereignty in control of all things. He exercises supreme control over every person, over every object, over every event. It's just a simple way of saying uh, that the Lord has sovereign control of everything. So when he says, I'm, this, I'm the Alpha, I'm the Omega, everything in between, everything that can be written, all that can be put together with all those combinations, he's in control of all of that. And there's not one place or one thing, no matter how large or small, that's outside his control. The buck stops there. And that's really a great thought. That's a comforting thought. When he says this is how it'll be, realize that he's got all that all planned out. So when it says then, it's done... And you can think about this, right, in our present state. Is it done yet in physical time? Are all these things done yet in physical time? No. But when the Lord said it's done, that means we can really count on it. That's for sure the next stop for eternity for people. God says it's going to happen. It's already done for all intents and purposes. And I think that's the point. And reinforcement from the Lord on the throne of what Christ has said the new state will be. Now look back at verse 6, if you would. Revelation 21, verse 6. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of water of the water of life without cost. Man, I love that. That's one of those verses, again, that just resonates with my own heart. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of water without cost. And I guess my thought is, and who's going to hinder that? No one. Psalm chapter 115, verse 3, But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. Isn't that great? He can do what He wants. And he wants to extend the water of life to all who thirst. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 13. Even from eternity, I am he. And there's none who can deliver out of my hand. I act. And who can reverse it? Those are great passages. Those are ones that I have highlighted in my Bible. I act and who can reverse it? That's the kind of God that you serve. See? Matthew chapter 19, verse 26. As, uh, Jesus speaks of salvation of people. Looking at them, Jesus said to them, With people this is impossible. With God all things are possible. The one who recognizes their spiritual dryness, the parched state of the soul, heaven belongs to those types of people. 
I will give to this one, he says, verse 6, who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. Jesus will give the drink that satisfies forever. You can't pay anything for it. It's without cost. It's something that's given to us because of what he has done. This, uh, as he refers to this spring of water, it's the eternal water of salvation that he's talking about. And even as we've gone through this book and we understand all the tribulation time and how it fits inside uh, our understanding of time and how it will expire, uh, we understand that still here in the book, and we're going to see it again in chapter 22, is that offer of the eternal life uh, found in Christ. And the figure of speech is this water that he gives without cost. John chapter 4, verse 13 Listen to these offers. These are just beautiful. And I just, I just, I'm doing this really for uh, your soul's encouragement. Jesus answered, said to her, <clears throat> Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. He's talking to the woman at the well, remember? She says, The well's deep and there's no one here to draw, and we can't draw anything, we don't have anything to draw with. Verse 14, But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. John chapter 7, verse 37. At the Feast of the Tabernacles, last day of the great feast, Jesus stands up and he cries out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. For he who believes in me, as the Scripture said, from his innermost being will flow the rivers of living water. That's the living water of eternal salvation. Isaiah 55, 1. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come and buy and eat. And come by wine and milk without money, without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. But you know what? You'd think it was poison by the way people react to that offer, right? You go and offer that to people, this water of life, this place where you can go and eat your fill. Spiritually speaking, people act like it's the worst kind of poison. Now look at verse 7, chapter 21, verse 7. So who gets to be in the kingdom? And he's just kind of summarizing. We understand this already, but once again, we understand the summary of who gets to be in the kingdom. He who overcomes will inherit these things. That's a great word, isn't it? We've been talking about that on Sunday morning. He who overcomes will inherit these things. I will be his God and he will be my son. So who's the overcomer? Well, Revelation chapter 2 and verse 7. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to him who overcomes. There it is again. I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Well, 1 John chapter 5, verse 4 tells us exactly what the overcomer is. For whomever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that's overcome the world. Our faith. That's the overcomer. Those who have faith in Christ, what he's done, have approached the Lord through faith in Christ, is the one who overcomes the world. He who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And so the overcomer gets to inherit. Those who believe that's who it is, those who have drank from the water of the well of life. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. That's what the overcomer gets. That's what they inherit. We saw that passage yesterday, uh, this morning. Matthew 25, verse 23. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. That's who overcomes. Uh, those who have faith, that's what they inherit. Romans 8, 16 and 17, as we've been looking on Sunday morning, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. 
These are the types of people who will inherit. Just kind of sum it up. Uh, those from the scriptures, those who thirst for righteousness, those who overcome, those who admit they are ungodly and desire, to, uh, desire release, those who are unworthy, those who recognize their spiritual thirst, those who recognize their spiritual hunger. Those are the ones. Romans says the ungodly. Those are the ones. Those are the ones that get to come to faith. Those are the only ones that can be saved. They inherit. But there's a kind of people that won't be there. And Scripture calls those out as well here in Revelation. And they are going to be in the lake of fire. And we know that is for unbelief. If you get to be in the kingdom for belief, you're, in the, you're out of the kingdom for unbelief. But the Scriptures almost always supplement that with identifying characteristics. What do these types of people have as a lifestyle? It's not the lifestyle of repentance and the battle against sin. But look at verse 8, a lifestyle of, what's it say? For the cowardly, that's the delos, those who are afraid to confess Christ, those who won't confess Christ. Uh, the unbelieving, pistos, those who are unwilling to trust the sinner's Savior, so there's no salvation available. You realize that is the unpardonable sin, the unbelieving. There's no way for those unbelievers who won't trust the, sa- the sinner's Savior to come to faith. The abominable won't be there. Abominable. The losos, that's, that's the word for stink, that's remaining in an unconfessed position, a state of sin that's a stench. It also refers sometimes to homosexuality. Those people won't be there, those who won't uh, confess their state of sin. Murderers, that's homicide, that's manslayers, ones who plan to take life. And remember, these are patterns of life, beloved. This is the pattern of life of the non-believer. Okay? So it's not because of these individual things. The Lord can forgive all of those individual things. It's the pattern of life that expresses these things in an unrepentant state. Those people don't inherit. Those people won't find themselves in the kingdom. Immoral persons, it says in verse 8. That's the word pornos. That's a sexual relationship that's incorrect according to the word of God. It includes prostitution, fornication, adultery, all of those things. As a pattern of life, if that's your life, uh, and it's an unrepentant state, uh, that is a... That is a uh, Indicative of those who will not inherit. Sorcerers, pharmacos, that's those devoted to magical arts. Uh, that's uh, one who uses drugs as well. It talks about that in the scriptures, potions, spells, enchantments. Sorcerers, idolaters, those who worship like the unsaved do. Uh, the love of money is referred to as well as pagan rituals. All liars, all kinds of falsehood, untruths, half-truths, misrepresentations, all forms of lying as a lifestyle. The scripture says in verse 8, Romans chapter 21, you don't inherit. If that's the pattern of the life, the unconfessed and deliberate pattern of the life, those are the types of folks that don't come into the kingdom. They don't inherit. First Corinthians chapter 6 kind of confirms that for us. And it's, uh, although it's a difficult passage to read, it's important. The scripture is honest, right? Straightforward. Listen, if this is the pattern of your life, this doesn't indicate believing. Okay? First Corinthians 6, 9, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Just over again, here's Paul just confirming what John just got through saying. Peter says it. And you find it all through the scriptures. Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, or adulterers, or effeminate, nor homosexuals, or thieves, or covetous, or drunkards, or revilers, or swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. All of us fell in there somewhere, didn't we? And such were some of you. We all used to be that way. But you were washed, and you were sanctified. And you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Isn't that great? All things, 
are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered or under the power by anything. No matter what, the, what, a sin, what sin a believer commits, God forgives. But not everything you can do, beloved, is profitable or beneficial. You can submit yourself to things that bring you under bondage. And the price of abusing freedom and grace is very high. And sin always produces loss. It never produces gain. And sin has power. And there's no sin more enslaving than sexual sin. And the scripture talks about it over and over again. And while it can never be the unbroken pattern of the true believer's life, it can be a reoccurring habit. It saps joy and peace, takes away the power of ministry, usefulness, and brings divine chastening and discipline. And I realize that's a little bit off topic as we're closing out, but I wanted to say that just because we don't live by the law. And I'm not trying to set up a standard here that uh, nobody can keep, including me. What I'm saying here is we read these passages in the Scripture, understand uh, these are character traits. Revelation 21.8, identify those who don't inherit. They, these things are the lifestyle of these folks, and they're named. Unbroken patterns, no repentance, justifying actions. See, and that's really the issue. Justifying what you're doing in that type of lifestyle, whatever it is, whatever it may happen to be, that in, indicates that those folks will not inherit. Okay? And so we say that, we talk about the good, we talk about the richness of the heavenly state, we're, we're joy-filled that uh, we've been redeemed, that we've been washed and sanctified as we just saw, and justified. We also realize that all things are free for us. We're not under condemnation in any way. Paul says, but don't, don't uh, come under the mastery. Let your flesh rule you like a king. So we're constantly reevaluating our lives that way, holding up the holy standard against the life. Okay, where is it that the flesh is ruling me like a king? This is not where I want to be. Understand that that very battle, that very discussion that you're having inside your own heart, the, the way that you realize that you're not doing what you really ought to do or doing it at the level you'd like to do, indicates that you're part of those who inherit. You understand? That's a sweet place to be. So I don't want you to confuse you by thinking, well, I've done some of these things, even since I've been saved, some of these things I've done. Yes, but how did you feel when you got all done? See, The Holy Spirit talked to you before you started and talked to you a lot afterwards, right? And you came to Him in repentance and you, you desire to change and you use the Word in your, as you wash your mind with the Word and renew your mind. You want to be reformed and, and again reset to, to please the Lord. See these things uh, be put behind you and find you're bringing, being brought under their power less and less. Okay? But as we read these things and we finish verse 8, Romans 21, or Revelation 21 rather, realize that this is the pattern of the unbeliever. This is the lifestyle of the unredeemed. This is how they live their life. You know people like this. There's people in your life who are unredeemed. This is their life. So understand that our desire very much is to differentiate between those two. The character traits and then also what can be a habit in a believer's life that needs to be broken. Okay? And so wherever you are, you understand. If this is your unbroken lifestyle, if you live like this, unchecked, unrepentant, justifying your actions, you're not going to inherit. No matter what you may say, no matter how long you've been going to church, no matter who your parents might be, whatever you might have done in your life, the fact of the matter is that a lifestyle that's unchecked in that direction, with those things as the character traits, justifying action, shows that you will not inherit because believers are not there. The Apostle Paul says, you were like that, but you're washed, you're sanctified, you're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God, and now you live differently. And he says in Romans, don't be brought under the power of those things again. Okay? So just kind of clearing those things up. Verse 21, verse 8, says, uh, But for the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abom, 
abominable, the murderers, the immoral persons, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars. Verse 8, their part will be in the lake of fire that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And we've talked about the second death. We've talked about what that looks like. And I think that's important as we see uh, John is expressed to him again uh, what it looks like to be a believer, what it looks like to be someone who inherits. He expresses it again for us right here at the end. Yeah, that's what it looks like. Now, next time we're going to look at the New Jerusalem. What's it like? What's it look like? Uh, who's in it? Those kinds of things will be our topic next week, Lord willing. And uh, let's close in a word of prayer. Okay? Do you bow with me? Father, we thank you today for a sweet time of fellowship. I'm grateful for the music that stirred our hearts, that uh, draw our, drew our attention to you again. We thank you for your constant work in our lives. We thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit who desires to uh, mold and shape our will, gives us understanding of your word, and gives us the desire and the understanding of how to see it accomplished in our own life. We thank you that as John was given this understanding from Revelation that he passed it on and handed it down to the churches and it's come right down to us. And we can read it and be clear what things look like. Over and over you give out the invitation to drink of the water of life and you tell us what it looks like for those who haven't. Thank you for the clarity there, Lord, and I pray you'll give us wisdom in our own life today to understand the difference between those two things. And so, Father, as we've been encouraged today in the church and as we've spent time this morning and this evening together, I pray that that will be the recharge that we needed as we come into our next week. That we can rejoice in who we are, that we can be about putting to death the deeds of the flesh, that we can be about being a witness, faithfully giving out your gospel as you give us opportunity. Help us to be a church like that, Father, given to the simple, direct things you've told us to do. Obedience is better than sacrifice. Ritualistic doing the things in the church is not as important to you as it is for us to obey. And help us to do those things you've given us clearly from your word to do. We honor you today, Lord, and we thank you for Jesus. We look forward to seeing him. It's in his name we pray. Amen.